Good afternoon. Thank you so much for your interest in biblical, spiritual things. That's what we are interested in here at the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ. Our interest is primarily trying to get to heaven, trying to help others get to heaven, doing all that we can to glorify our God in the process and to magnify his name among the people. I invite you to take your Bibles and open, if you'd like to, to the book of John chapter 17, where we're going to read a passage today and focus in on three or four verses in just a moment. Thank you for coming to our website, godsredeemed.org, or for watching us, uh, whether you're watching us on Sunday or watching us at a later time. We're thankful for the fact that you are curious about the Bible or are already dedicated to a life of service to God's Word. In John chapter 17, we find the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And if I were to ask people of the world to recite the Lord's Prayer or to open to the Lord's Prayer, chances are they would, rather than open to John chapter 17, open up to a passage in the book of Matthew and the great Sermon on the Mount, or they'll open to a passage in the book of Luke. And the Lord's Prayer, as many people would call it, goes like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But as good Bible students, we know that that's more likely a model prayer or a pattern for prayer or a way in which prayer was to be taught, because after all, the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. If you really want to understand the Lord's Prayer, perhaps John chapter 17 is a more appropriate passage to turn to. Because as I mentioned, it is the single longest recorded prayer of Jesus. Now, this certainly would not be the longest prayer of Jesus. We knew that he would escape sometimes for hours on end to pray to the Father and to speak to the Father about the things that were on his mind. But there is much that we can learn in John chapter 17. And I want to begin reading in verse 9. We're not going to read the entire prayer. We're actually only focusing our attention on verses 16, 17, 18, and 19 this afternoon. But I want us to read beginning in verse 9, where Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And now notice with increased focus, verses 16 through 19. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Those words sanctified and truth, I believe, are key to an understanding of what Jesus is praying. When he's praying for those who would serve him centuries ago, and for that matter, it seems to me that you and me were on the mind of the Savior when he was praying these things 2,000 years ago, talking about facts about those who serve the Lord in sanctification and in truth. I want to use these four verses today and pretend that these were the only verses that we had to go on to understand what Jesus prayed about. Because I believe here at the climax of his prayer, near the end of this great petition to the Father, we learn an awful lot about Jesus, we learn an awful lot about ourselves, and we learn an awful lot about sanctification and truth. I want us to look at some facts by looking at these four verses this afternoon. And I want us to use each verse to make a separate observation or a separate point. And I want us to start with this observation, and that is we need to understand that we are not of this world. Romans chapter 12, which we'll read here in just a moment, tells us that we are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed from the world But notice, if you would, with a laser on verse 16, he says, They, those that follow me, those that come after me, those that are going to serve me, those who are the children of God, they are not of the world, similar to the fact that I am not of the world. Jesus prays specifically, they are not of the world. He understood that not being of the world meant that we were different from the world. And we know how Jesus is not of the world. Consider, if you would, uh, a, a comparison passage very late in the New Testament in the book of Revelation chapter 22. Usually when we look at Revelation 21 or 22, we're looking at the, the closing words of the book of Revelation and considering heaven and considering the beauty thereof. But notice, if you would, a couple of verses here that are, I think, important to help us understand John 17. Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus says in verse 12, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And then he says, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, I am the beginning, I am the end, the first and the last. Jesus says, I'm not of the world. Drop down to verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And so we know that Jesus, when he says in verse 16 of John chapter 17, he says, just as I am not of the world, he's proving that indeed he's not of the world. 
He came to this earth voluntarily, yes, in submission to the will of the Father, but voluntarily he came and lived his life as a man, suffered as a man, and died as a man, but yet is the only person to be resurrected of his own fruition or of that of the Father's will in a special testimony to the fact that God cares about us and cares about his creation. So how is it, might I ask, that we understand this particular concept wherein we are not of this world? How do we go about doing that? Let me suggest considering two or three things before we move on to our second observation from verse 17. Number one, we need to consider what the world is about. We need to know what's going on in this world. You know, the irony is, is the more we understand the world, the more we don't want to be a part of the world. Let me say that again. The more we understand the world as Christians, as people of faith, the less likely it is that we want to be a part of the world, or at least that should be our attitude. And that seems to be what John the Apostle was writing about in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, when he says, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And then he goes on and says, if someone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 4, verse 16 of First John 2, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are things that are not of the Father, but are of the world. Verse 17 goes on to talk about the fact that the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There's so much richness in 1 John chapter 2 that we understand that we need to think about the world in the way that God thinks about the world. Don't be a part of it. Don't be married to it. Don't be devoted to it. So consider what the world is about. But let me suggest also that we are to consider what happens in the world. Matthew chapter 6, in that great sermon on the mountaintop, Jesus addresses this, and he says, you've got to understand what matters. And what he says in chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, rather than focusing on the world and focusing on this earth, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we need to consider what the world is about. We need to consider what happens in the world. And then let me suggest in going back to Romans chapter 12, where we quoted from, that pick up in verse 2, where he's talking about this heart transplant. And Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 the Apostle Paul says to these early Christians, you need to understand that in order to be faithful to the Creator, to be faithful to our Father, we need to have a change of heart. He goes on by saying, you can prove what is that good, what is that acceptable, and what is that perfect will of God by renewing your mind, might I suggest, renewing our heart. Jesus says... In this section of the prayer of John chapter 17, he says, I want the, the followers of me, 
both in the immediate sense of the first century as well as those who are serving in 2020 in Rutherford County, Tennessee, or wherever they are in the world to know that they are not of the world. Secondly, we need to appreciate the fact that the truth sanctifies us. The truth sets us apart. Jesus, in John 17, 17, which is the most quoted verse in all of the 17th chapter, where he says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth, identifies or establishes two key points. Point number one is this, that the word of God is truth. And number number two is that the truth sets us apart. So God's word is truth, and it is what sets us apart. But have you ever stopped to think about why that happens or how that happens? I want to spend just an extra moment or two thinking about how does this happen? How does the truth set us apart? How does the truth make us different from the world? After all, point number one, fact number one in verse 16 is that we are not of this world. Well, how is the truth going to set us apart in this world? And that's what's confusing to some people when they're first coming to uh, an understanding of the truth is you're asking me to live in the world, to go to work in the world, to go to school in the world, to, to go grocery shopping in the world, but yet not be of the world. Well, that sounds confusing. And in some ways, at first blush, that is a little bit confusing, or at the very least, a little bit challenging. But how does this go about transpiring in our lives? Let me suggest three steps or three observations. Number one is we understand that Jesus Christ is the truth. It comes with a fundamental understanding of who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and who Jesus will always be. In the introductory paragraph to the book of John that we're focusing on this this afternoon, John says the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then just three chapters earlier in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That second thing that Jesus acknowledges about himself when he says, no one comes to the Father except by way of me, is he says, I am the truth. The truth is Jesus. And when we identify ourselves with Jesus, we are setting ourselves apart from the world. It also happens in that, as John records in John chapter 8 and verse 32, that the truth provides for our freedom. It provides for our salvation. In verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and it is the truth that shall set you free. So not only does the truth set us apart, but the truth provides us with freedom. What is the truth? It's Jesus Christ himself, as we said just a moment or two ago. And then we need to understand that once we have that freedom, once we experience the freedom in Jesus Christ, it leads to eternal life, which leads me to think about Romans chapter 6, 
where Jesus or where Paul talks about the importance of baptism and the fact that we are saved through Jesus being baptized into him and to his death. In verse 20 of Romans chapter 6, he says, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end everlasting life. You see, one of the points that Paul is making in Romans chapter 6, among other places in Scripture, is that we are all slaves. We are either slaves to God or we are slaves to Satan. But once we decide to obey the truth, we are slaves to righteousness because it leads us to life. Yes, it comes with a cost. Yes, Christianity is not free. And indeed, being a servant of God requires our effort. But it leads to life because the truth sets us apart. Let me suggest thirdly that that truth is not something that we should keep to ourselves but rather we should do our best to share with others. Notice verse 18 of John chapter 17 as we look at our third fact. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. We'll talk about some passages that quickly come to mind here in just a moment. But we understand here that Jesus recognizes his purpose and says, my purpose in coming to this world is similar to the purpose that you and I are to provide for others. Now, granted, we don't have the capacity to die for the sins of humanity. Our death is meaningless in terms of paying for sin or canceling the debt. But Jesus' life and his death was purposeful in similar fashion. The way that we live and conduct ourselves is purposeful as well. Jesus' purpose was simple, and it matches nicely with the purpose of us and the purpose of the church. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy, but instead, Luke chapter 9, verse 56, Jesus says he has come to save. That's Jesus' purpose. You know, sometimes we, we get really caught up in, in, in the, the details or the, maybe the, the theological way of discussing things. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Let me suggest to you that Jesus came for two words, to save. That's why Jesus came. That's the simplicity of his purpose is to save mankind from sin. And let me go further to say that that then leads to our purpose is to be laborers in his fields. Again, the book of John is rich with imagery about how we are to go about uh, seeking and saving the lost. In verse 27, at this point of chapter 4 in John's account of the gospel, in chapter 27, or chapter 4 and verse 27, says at that point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water pot, water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. 
Jesus then goes on to talk about the difference between physical food and spiritual food. And then he says, there are indeed fields that are white for harvest in verse 35, that there is work to be done. And you can read those 12 verses on your own in more detail this week. But simply put, our purpose is to labor in the fields of Jesus the Christ. And then when Jesus comes and lives and dies and is buried and then is resurrected, what does he say after his resurrection? Simply put, he says two things. He says, number one, I want you to follow me and follow my example as referenced in John chapter 20. Remember where he's having that discussion with Peter and for that matter, the other early disciples. And he says, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow my example. I want you to do the things that I did, the compassion that I had for others. I want you to have that. As my father has sent me, I also, Jesus says, send you. And then what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to teach. We are supposed to follow his example, and we are to teach anybody and everybody that will listen. In Matthew chapter 28, in that great commission where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he's in essence saying what he prayed in John 17 verse 18 where he says, as you sent me into the world, I'm also sending them into the world as well. In many ways, John 17, verse 18, which is in the closing hours of Jesus' life, is a precursor or a prequel to the Great Commission, wherein Jesus says, go, teach, preach, baptize, and spread my name to the known world. So we need to remember that we are not of the world, that the truth is going to set us apart, that it's our responsibility to teach the truth, and fourthly, we need to realize that it's all made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's important because if we lose sight of that fact, then we begin to think that salvation is of our own making, that we are able to make things happen because of our own uh, whimsical ways or our own wisdom. Rather, it's Jesus that makes it all possible. Notice the last verse of our study today in verse 19. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus says it's for their sakes that I'm setting myself apart. In essence, Jesus is saying it's for humanity. It's for the followers that are serving me here in the early part of the first century. It's for the followers that will come centuries later. And it's for the followers that will be developed in 2020 in the United States and in the world. He says, my sacrifice is going to make these things possible. Because Jesus knew that without sanctification, there is absolutely no hope. Let me conclude with three things and three passages that I think help us to really appreciate this. Jesus, when he talks about being sanctified, knew that he did not need to be set apart from sin. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, an oft-quoted verse and a familiar passage in the book of Hebrews, but let's turn and read it. But in the book of Hebrews, 
chapter 4 in verse 14 to back up one verse to give us a little bit of flavor. He says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he, Jesus, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Which leads us to the place in verse 16 where we can courageously or boldly come to the throne of grace. Let me suggest also, and secondly, that Jesus had to die for us. Uh, You could say, well, he didn't have to die. Well, that's true. If he didn't want to subject himself to the Father's will, he doesn't have to die for us. But Jesus knew that if there were any hope for us, there needed to be a death. And the death needed to be that of a perfect being. In fact, in chapter 10 of the same letter to the Hebrews in verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And then notice the next word, once for all. Of course, this was in great contrast to the continual sacrifices that were being made in the times of Judaism, wherein people needed repeated sacrifices in order for sins to be blotted out or for sins to be removed or for sins to be rolled forward, as we sometimes talk about. And then thirdly, Jesus had to be in some way forsaken by God. We have the, the, the famous instance in Psalm 22 where Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there are different ways of understanding exactly what that means. And there may even be some disagreement among brethren about what that actually means. But I want to go over to Matthew chapter 27 verses 45 and 46 and just briefly read those two verses. Even though we may not fully comprehend every aspect of Jesus on the cross and how that related to his relationship with the Father, we can appreciate the the agony that he went through. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? There were individuals who were there that were confused, and they thought he was calling for Elijah in verses 47 and 48. But we know that certainly was not the case. Rather, it was Jesus at the very elementary basis understanding that this sacrifice was necessary in order for sin to be removed because his sacrifice made it possible. Why did Jesus go through all of that pain? Why did he endure all that suffering? He did so not because he needed to be set apart from sin, but so that we might be set apart from our sin. It came through his truth because after all, I, Jesus says, am the truth. And it came through his sanctification. The fact is, is when it comes to truth, when it comes to sanctification, Jesus and his truth have been established. We need to be established in his word and be sanctified and set apart as well. Jesus has done all that he can. He is begging, he is pleading us to follow him. Now, 
as we sometimes say, the ball's in our court. It's up for us to react and to choose what we're going to do with his word. He's not going to force you to serve him, nor will he force me to serve. We are all, as we talked about in one of our recent sermons on Sunday morning, volunteers in his army. We are all ready to suffer for him and serve him. But you need to choose to be a part of that volunteer army as well. And so we stand ready to assist you and to study with you. It may be that you're watching today and you're new to the Lord's church. You're new to Bible study. And you say, I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know more about this. What is the church of Christ at Northfield Boulevard? We're ready to help you. We're ready to study with you. And we'll do so at any hour of the day. Or if you're ready to become a Christian, you can contact us on our website at godsredeemed.org and we'll assist you in being baptized to have your sins washed away. If we can help you in any way, if we can pray for you, if we can be of assistance in a spiritual fashion, we would love the opportunity. Thanks so much for watching. I bid you a very good day and a great week.